Hello, and welcome to the 5 and 40 podcast. I'm Greg Steele, your host. Glad you chose to join me today. Thank you for listening. So, I did an intro episode, uh, episode one, and that introduction was just about the 5 and 40 podcast as a whole. Talked about kind of the format of the podcast, talked about why it was I was even bothering to do a podcast, and, um, also talked a little bit about myself, so just hopefully you can get to know a little bit about me. And today, I guess, will be the first real episode. And I think it's going to be kind of a challenge, uh, just from the standpoint of I'm trying to do, you know, five topics in 40 minutes. I'm trying to do each topic at about eight minutes. And I think, you know, some topics that time is going to be hard to reach and then probably other topics, it's going to be too easy and I won't be able to get in everything I'd like to say. And I guess technically it's my podcast. I mean, I can go over in one category and under in another if I need to. But I'm going to try to stick to that framework. But uh, the first category, as we talked about previously, is something encouraging. And so because this is the first show with each topic, I'm going to try to talk a little bit about how come that is one of the categories. And so I wanted one of the categories to be something encouraging just because of the standpoint of I think that I'd like to encourage people. I mean, it's sort of one of the goals I have in life. I do a lot of teaching. I work with a lot of students. I work with a lot of patients. I'm in the medical field. And I really am trying to encourage people to do better, um, to move forward, and to reach their goals and things like that. And so I wanted that to be part of this podcast. And it was my friend Josh Peak I talked about that really encouraged me to do this podcast. He has a podcast called Stuff I Heard. He's been at it a couple years. He's got a lot of episodes. I really encourage you to take a listen. But the one thing about his podcast, in my opinion, is even though he talks about so many different things, the overriding theme of his podcast is encouraging. It's about being hopeful. You know, sometimes in this world today, unfortunately, it's kind of hard to find anybody who's positive, anybody who's hopeful. And he really wants to tell people that they can accomplish anything that they want to, but you have to make the decision to do it and kind of the only thing that's keeping you from accomplishing those things are your is kind of you and your own decisions and the motivation to get it done you know i think anything that's worth doing or anything we want to do in this life there's going to be roadblocks and the more roadblocks there are kind of the more hesitant we get to really try to push through them to reach our goals and i really just am a big believer and i think i talked on the other podcast just about that with all the good things going in in my life, I have a lot of things to be thankful for, and I certainly have nothing to complain about. You know, I have the band, I've got the poker group, I've got the bourbon group, I have a good family, I have a good wife, I live in a good place, I have a good job, you know. I mean, things are really going well, but it's sort of like when you don't do anything new or nothing different goes on, I guess you just get in this point where you take all that stuff for granted and so I feel like I've been at that point for a little while it's kind of the reason I'm doing this podcast you know I was talking to Josh and telling him some of those things and he's like well you know you need to do something different encourage me to do this and I'm kind of excited about it and maybe it's the first new thing I'm excited about in a pretty good while and so I really think that the podcast as a whole is going to be a personal encouragement to me and I think it's going to be something where as I succeed with this that it's probably going to help push me forward to succeed in other areas where maybe I've been procrastinating or maybe things I haven't even thought about yet. Um, So I'm kind of excited about that. And, you know, the other thing that I really want is to hopefully be able to encourage you as a listener. 
um, just because of the fact that starting out this podcast, I mean, the hardest part of anything is just getting it going, getting it started. And I've gone through that step. I still need to set up the Facebook page. You know, um, I need to get used to how this podcast podcast goes. I'm making notes, you know, it's going to be a time commitment. Um, and so I hope just that in itself might be encouraging to someone else that there's something you wanted to do and you just haven't really told yourself you're going to take the step and maybe that helps you I hope and maybe I'm hoping to some of the things that I say or some of the messages or some of the topics in the podcast could maybe help you also and help you in some areas or maybe things you could share with others and so um, I really am kind of excited about that so the podcast is going to be probably weekly. You know, my friend Josh does bi-weekly podcasts, but I'm sort of afraid right here at the beginning to try to make that kind of commitment because I am fairly busy. Um, and I, But I want to get a, an episode out a week. I want to have some new content. And um, I just feel like that as I keep doing that, that it's going to be more and more encouraging. And I'm kind of excited about that. So honestly, I'm done talking about that topic. I'm at about 520, so that one's a little bit shorter, but I do have a feeling that later ones are going to run a little bit long. So we'll move on to the next topic, which the next topic is medical. And the question is, why did I choose medical as a topic? And really, I'm a nurse practitioner. Um, I practice in infectious disease. I practiced in oncology for a lot of years. I've been in the medical field as a nurse in a variety of roles since 1995. And um, so it's just something that I'm interested in. It's also something I'm knowledgeable about. And I also think that there's topics that are valuable to talk about. And so today, for the first podcast, I was going to talk about something that's pretty near and dear to my heart, which is HIV. And, you know, that sounds really weird. And I think a lot of people, if I started talking about that, they'd be turned off. But I don't want you to really be turned off by the topic because there's a lot of encouraging things to say about it. So I'm going to talk about some of the issues with it. But I'm also going to talk about just the way that it's so different these days and about how some of the things that have been believed forever just aren't true. And so... A lot of previous beliefs about HIV, you know, it came around in the 1980s. They didn't really know what it was. They didn't have treatments for it. Everybody was dying. You know, when you have HIV, it decreases your immune system and you're not technically dying from HIV. You're usually dying because you're catching what we call opportunistic infections, which that just basically means that there's an opportunity for you to get them because your immune system's low. If your immune system is normal, you wouldn't be catching that stuff. You know, but there's a lot of old beliefs about HIV that just aren't true anymore. And so I wanted to talk about those because I I see newly diagnosed patients with HIV. I talk with them. I talk to their families. And some things that just aren't true are still widely believed. And that is like I'll have a family member who asks me, do I need to get whole new cups and plates for this person? Can I still hug my daughter? You know, some of these things. And so to be able to talk to them, because when people hear they've been diagnosed with HIV, they're just so apprehensive. They think life's over. They think no one will care about them anymore. They think they can't love anyone anymore. And I mean, those things just aren't true. And so, no, I have those conversations with people and I tell people, hug your daughter. And I tell your people, you know, you can't catch this because you're in contact with them or you share a plate or you share a toilet or whatever those things. I mean, there's a lot of beliefs out there that just aren't true. And, um, 
even in the medical profession, it's a little bit weird because, you know, you'll have patients that get ad admitted to the hospital and certain doctors will put them on what we call contact precautions, which just basically means like you might wear a gown and gloves and things in the room. And so that tells you that even in the medical profession that there's obviously wrong beliefs because there's no reason that you need contact precautions for someone with HIV. You can go in, shake hands with those people, hug those people, sit with them. I mean, they're people, you know. And it's not something that's going to spread to you just because you're hanging out with somebody. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time with somebody newly diagnosed and talking to them about, you know, these things aren't true anymore. Talking to their family about, yes, you should still love your loved ones and things like this. And so the interesting thing about HIV is that nationwide, it's under pretty good control. Now, I'm in South Georgia. And so if you're listening to this in other parts of the country, you may not have the problem like we have here because 50% of new HIV cases are diagnosed in nine southern states. So, you know, there's other parts of the country like San Francisco where HIV's really been around forever, where people talk about it, where testing is normal, where people are being treated for a long time, where it just isn't any big deal anymore. There's not stigma associated with it. You know, unfortunately in the South, always behind on everything down here. We are in the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt's sort of interesting just from the standpoint of that people here don't even talk about the fact that people have sex, right? I mean, the church and things like that. And I'm not by any means anti-church. I'm a Christian person. I go to church. It's just that, unfortunately, this creates a barrier to us being able to have conversations about HIV that really need to take place so that we can make sure that people don't continue to spread it and also that people who have it get adequately treated. And so the only problem with HIV at all whatsoever these days is not knowing you have it. And the recommendation is that everyone from the ages of 13 to 65 should be tested for HIV at least once in their lifetime and should be tested more often if you were engaging in high-risk behaviors. Um, but the point is, is that we as a medical community do a really bad job at testing people. So if you had HIV, the only way you'd know you had HIV is that a couple of weeks later, you'd probably have a couple days of a flu-like illness, maybe some chills and just generalized aching, and then it goes away, and then there's absolutely no way you have, you'd know you have HIV unless your immune system gets low and you get sick. And so it takes some time, but over time, people who don't know they have it or don't get treatment, you know, their immune system falls and then they start to catch these bad infections. Now, interestingly enough, those infections used to kill everyone, almost everyone, even if I see you for the first time and your immune system is completely and totally knocked out and you've caught some kind of infection, almost everyone I can fix and almost everyone over time I can get them totally and completely healthy again. Now, not 100%, unfortunately, but it's a very, very high percentage. But if we could know that people had HIV before their immune systems dropped and we could put them on medicine where their immune system never went down, they'd never catch those infections and they'd never have any problems. And these days, the life expectancy of a patient with HIV who takes their medication, gets the virus under control, keeps a good immune system is within three years of another person. So those people are going to die from normal American stuff, right? Like heart attacks and diabetes and all the other things that, that get us. But it's not going to be HIV. And if you have HIV, you take medications and eventually it suppresses your virus where you can't find it in the blood anymore and your immune system is stable and not low it will give you absolutely no problem. You'll live a normal life, you'll be with your kids, you'll do all these things. And you know, of course, 
what I would be worried about is I can't have relationships anymore. I can never have sex again. I never can do these things. And even that's not true anymore. So they did a big study in France not too long ago where they were following hundreds of thousands of people who had HIV where one person in the relationship had it and the other one did not. And they were having unprotected sex and it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of episodes. And in patients who took medication where you couldn't find the virus, and the other thing is, is that if you were in that situation where your partner had HIV and you didn't, you also can take some medicine, what's called PrEP. And so for people on PrEP who had a partner where the virus couldn't be detected in hundreds of thousands of episodes, there were zero transmissions. And so that's leading us today to something we call U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmittable. Meaning that even if you have HIV, you get your viral load under control, your immune system is good, your partner takes PrEP, you can have sex, you can even have kids, you could do all these things. And so the story of HIV, as me, a person who sees new patients diagnosed with HIV, is that initially there's absolutely no hope. People are devastated, but they're devastated because they think they're going to die. They think no one will love them. They think everyone will judge them. They think they can never have a normal life again. And all of those things just aren't true anymore. Um, I guess if there's one part of that that still might be true, it is the judgment portion. Um, you know, a lot of people don't want people to know, and there is still a lot of stigma associated with it. And I guess unless you work with it every day like I do, you know, you, it it takes some time to really kind of just figure out that these are still people and that these are people who, if you really, really think about it, now this can't be everybody because some people are, uh, you know, very careful or they're good or whatever. But when I look back at my life, you know, I have a lot of opportunities where I could have gotten HIV, right? I mean, you don't know. You can't look at someone and know that they have it. And uh, so you, you're just luckier than that other person in some instances. You know, an HIV 100% doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care about your race. It doesn't care about your orientation. It cares about nothing. Anyone can get it at any time. And so, you know, it doesn't care about money. <laughs> you know, it doesn't care about anything. Um, and so, you know, that's the thing about it is, is that there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of good things, but if you want to spread one message, it's just that people should get tested and people should want to get tested. And the reason you should want to, I mean, people don't want to, cause they're so apprehensive. They don't want to know they have it. But the problem is if you don't know you have it and you don't get on treatment and then your immune system gets low and you start to get sick where all of that could be avoided, and the only people I see that really have problems with it are ones who don't or won't take their medicines. And so it's one of those things where if you take your medicine, you're fine. And, you know, it used to be this big handful of pills, and now it's one pill one time a day. And so uh, it's almost become a manageable disease. I mean, it's better to have HIV than some other chronic problems like end-stage COPD, maybe even diabetes, maybe even asthma, you know, things where you get sick intermittently on and off and you have to go to the doctor and you have to take treatments. It's just like with HIV. If you take your medicine, you're good. No problem, right? And so the other thing I guess I can encourage you to do is if you know someone who had it, I mean, just take some time to be with them and take some time to get, you know, know what they're going through. But just from the standpoint of getting comfortable around that, that that's still a person. They really don't have these restrictions. There's no reason you shouldn't be their friend, hug them, these kind of things. And so... um you know, I just want to encourage you in those areas, uh, 
that it's just not the same disease that it used to be because we're so good at it now, right? And again, get tested. I mean, the only problem is if you had it and you didn't know. So, uh, yeah, that one ran a little bit longer. So now we're going to move to the next, which is the not ideal category. So why did I choose not ideal? You know, I thought a lot on this category about what I was going to call it because I didn't want it to sound like something very negative. But in life, you know, we have things going on that are just kind of not the best or that could be better. And so it's just real life that it's that way. And so I want to talk about some of those things, not necessarily with a super negative connotation, but, you know, just to have that be a, a possible topic. And so in this episode, the not ideal topic I wanted to talk about was sort of the opioid epidemic and drug abuse. And I know this probably could fit in the medical category, but it's just another topic that I find pretty interesting that certainly is not ideal. And so I wanted to just review a little bit of that. And so anyone who's seen the news or anyone who knows anything knows that, you know, we've been going through an opioid epidemic. And so basically... For years and years and years, us as a medical community, we're giving out a lot of oxycodone and hydrocodone and, you know, morphine and just all of these drugs. And it's just kind of the way, it's the way things were. I mean, we went through this period of time where treating people's pain was really encouraged, even to the point where in the medical community, we started calling, asking someone if they were having pain or asking someone about their pain was what we called the fifth vital sign. And so... Basically, we were asking everyone pain all the time, saying that only a patient could tell you what their pain was, only the patient could tell you if the pain medicine worked, and we were just giving also very large amounts of pain medication prescriptions. And so, you know, it's strange in the medical community just from the standpoint of the things that we do that aren't necessarily ideal, and then later on you learn that, you know, that wasn't the greatest thing, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, leeches back in the day or you know sometimes like there's a cancer medicine that we used to give people to bring up their white blood cell counts and we were does oh that's great people aren't getting infections when their white blood cell counts come up and then we found out uh-oh that can mean your cancer comes back faster or worse and so we stopped using it on everybody and you know so over time things adjust and so we just sort of learned that oh my gosh all this pain medicine that's being given out is kind of creating a big problem and so we have the opioid epidemic now and you know it's gone federal and you have the federal government suing all these drug companies for billions of dollars and all this kind of stuff and in the medical community they basically told you now hey can't give out all this pain medicine to people anymore and hey when you give a prescription instead of giving 60 pills like you used to you know you just give a couple of days now and these kind of things and the real big problem is, I mean, those are right things and those are good things. It's just that the real big not ideal issue is, is that you have all of these people out here that are addicted to this stuff. And now all of a sudden, we're just supposed to not give them to them anymore. And that's supposed to kind of be okay, you know. But there's sort of a problem when you're taking these kind of medicines and then you stop taking these medicines as you have withdrawals and other things. And there's people that are truly addicted and actually, believe it or not, I just saw something on Facebook today. Somebody had posted something like, how can you say that addiction is a disease and these kind of things? But, you know, we know some things. We know that addiction runs in families. Like if you had an aunt that was an alcoholic or an uncle or whatever, you are much more likely to become an alcoholic or get addicted to something. It, it can just be in your genes. 
But then the other things when you get into some of these drugs is that they're so highly addictive. I mean, some of them you can do one time and literally have a physical physical addiction to them. And it's interesting because we know, like, if you look at cigarettes. So we know cigarettes are addictive, but must let, much less addictive than something like oxycodone or take even heroin. And, you know, in order for someone to quit smoking, generally they fail three times. And then we've proven that they need counseling as well. Like your your chance of success is if you get help is much higher than if you try to do it on your own. And that's just talking about cigarettes. You take something that's much more highly addictive like these drugs and it's just much, much harder. And so it's almost like we're patting people on the head and we're saying, hey, you know, just don't go do it anymore. I'm sorry we gave you that stuff, but we can't do it now. <laughs> and that's just kind of not how things work really well, right? And so we have a big problem uh, with the people that are addicted to take oxycodone, for instance. I mean, that's one of the most common drugs that people are on. They can't get it from their doctor anymore. And so basically, the thing that gives you kind of the closest high to that that's kind of readily available and maybe cheap is heroin. So unfortunately, we have a bunch of these people that are out there doing heroin now. Well, there's big problems with doing IV heroin, of course, right? One of them being like heart valve infections or what we call endocarditis. And so... Unfortunately, it's young females that I see with this stuff more than anyone else who were addicted to these pills. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, we're talking about heart valve surgery and these kind of things. And so what happens is they'll inject themselves with a needle, not necessarily very clean. They inject infection into their blood. And because they've been doing um, these illicit drugs that aren't very clean, it'll scratch up the heart valve and and blood will get there and kind of form clots or things we call vegetations. Well, once infection gets in the blood, it sticks to those, causes a bunch of problems. Hard to get the infection cleaned out. A lot of times they have to have heart valve surgery, these kind of things. And the really bad thing is we do the heart valve surgery and even the most debilitated people seem to really do well with that surgery. But we kind of pat them on the head and we're like, okay, we gave you a valve. Now the problem is you go do drugs again inject more infection in the blood and then your new valve gets infected well then we're like well don't do drugs anymore because if you do drugs again and you infect your new valve we're not going to give you another one well they don't give you another one and then you're probably pretty much dead and so you know the big thing is we sued all these drug companies and the government got billions of dollars on this stuff but as far as i've seen so far and i kind of do this every day they haven't done anything to put that money towards getting these addicted people better because again what we know is you need to go to a facility you need to have support you need to have help and especially if you don't have any money which a lot of people doing IV drugs probably don't there's just nowhere to send you and so the big problem is is they'll be in the hospital with me sometime for six weeks while they get IV antibiotics they tend to do really well but a lot of times there's things that drive people to addictive behaviors. You know, there's there's stressors, there's things like this. There's the people they hang around. You know, when you're addicted to something, you tend to put your whole life around that thing. And uh, so these people have no friends that don't do drugs. And whatever stressors were bothering them, they get discharged from the hospital and they're going back in those stressors and the way they coped with those was with drugs. And we haven't really given them any tools to kind of help them get over those things. And so going back to drugs is a, is a pretty big risk, right? I mean, considering, again, cigarettes take three times to quit, but you go back to heroin once and you can infect your new valve, it's a lot more serious. And so my real hope is is that what we're going to see going forward is that the money that they're getting from the drug companies then be put towards, you know, rehabs and, and treatment for these patients so we can avoid some of these issues. Um, 
But I will say overall, it's a good thing that we're not giving out the drugs to people like we used to. It's great for everybody, except for this group of people that are sort of left behind. And so I think we have an opportunity there to do quite a bit better. Um, all right. So the next topic is the or category, I apologize, is the random category. And I wanted to have a random category just because the fact that I like the previous topics and they are pretty broad and I probably can talk about a variety of things in those topics but I just wanted to have something where I could just kind of talk about whatever I want and uh, really the reason why I wanted to do a podcast with different categories is I could have done an all bourbon podcast you know but I didn't really want to I didn't want to be stuck to one thing and I wanted to have some flexibility and some variety and things like that so the random category is just sort of open and so during the random category today I wanted to talk about wood pellet grilling and so my friend Josh Peak, you know, who has the uh, the other podcast, the stuff I heard, finally talked him into getting a pellet grill. And uh, boy, we've been having a good time with it. We've talked on his podcast about it quite a few times. But if you don't know what a wood pellet grill is, they have several companies. You know, a few years ago they only had a couple companies, but it's exploded and they're everywhere. I mean, you can find them in Home Depot now. Uh, you can find them just anywhere you want to go. But basically, what it is is it's a grill. And it has on the side of it a bin where you put in wood chips. The wood chips sort of look like hamster pellets, in my opinion. And they have a lot of different kinds of wood chips. So they might have oak and they might have cherry and they might have mesquite. And then they also have blends of wood chips. So I have a Texas blend that I'm using right now, which is supposed to be good for briskets and for meat. And it, it has some hickory and some mesquite and some oak in it. And so some of the blends are good. Um, but basically... They call this thing where the chips are stored a hopper. And then down below the hopper, they have an auger. It's just basically this gear that turns. And as it turns, it feeds the wood chip into at what's at the bottom of the grill called a fire pot. So the fire pot has a little fire starter in it. So basically, the grill plugs in and you flip the switch to start. And so it starts feeding pellets into this thing and they light on fire. Now basically the great thing about it is is it'll stay at whatever temperature you want it to stay at for as long as you want it to stay there as long as you add wood chips when you need to and so there's a dial on mine and there's other controllers on different models of course but i turn it to what temperature i want and basically the higher temperature you want the faster it feeds the pellets into the fire pit and so you know it makes heat of course and so it really provides steady heat and it's almost really like turning on your oven because it just does that as long as you want it to do that now the other interesting thing is right above the fire pot there tends to be a pretty heavy piece of metal where you don't really want the very middle of the grill where the fire pot is to be much much hotter than the rest of it and so this kind of pushes the heat around this plate and it really works a lot like a convection oven and so the interesting thing about it is, is it's a grill, because when the wood chips burn, it produces smoke. Now, it doesn't produce a whole bunch of smoke, but in my opinion, I've never been like, that's not enough smoke. I mean, there are people who feel that way, but uh, it, it puts some smoky flavor in the food, too, because you're getting some wood smoke from the chips. And so it's so versatile, it's crazy. Now, it is just like an oven, and you can cook anything you, you on it that you want that you could cook in an oven. And so generally, I'll put my meat on there and cook my meat and then take my meat off and let it rest. And then I can put all my vegetables in there. You can use cast iron skillets on it. You can make cornbread we've done before. You can do desserts. There's just anything you want. And here in South Georgia, 
you know, in the summer, it just gets ridiculously hot and we won't want to heat up the kitchen or use the kitchen. And you can always go outside and, you know, crank that thing up and use it as much as you want. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting is fish and chicken are the two things that, in my opinion on it, are just flawless. Like, the best things that they make are fish and chicken, and especially chicken, because, you know, chicken's something you can overdo. But this keeps the chicken so moist and it's incredibly forgiving. You know, I cook beef on it and when I do I have a meat thermometer in it and I have to be very exact you also have to be very exact with pork but the chicken I mean just put it on there and let it go you can take whole chickens and put it on there just leave it with the lid down for 120 minutes and they come out perfect I mean it just makes great juicy chicken all the time fish especially on a wood plank is wonderful on it and so um, those are where they really shine now it also does really good with beef other models than mine are different kinds than mine crank up to a lot higher heats than mine do, and sometimes I don't think mine gets high enough to sear the meat like I'd like. However, I usually cook it slow and low on the smoke setting and get it to the inside temperature I want, let it rest, and then put a cast iron skillet on there and crank it up, and the cast iron skillet gets very, very hot and it gives me a really nice sear. And so it can do anything you want to do. And I really encourage, if you like to grill or you like to cook, I really encourage you to look into it. Now, the one thing I'll say about it, though, is so I'm on some Facebook groups about these grills. And so pretty frequently you have someone who buys one of these grills and then immediately kind of posts a message like, I bought this grill because I saw you guys posting these wonderful meals and this beautiful meat on here. And I have this thing and, and it just doesn't do that for me. I'm taking it back. These things aren't what you guys said they were, blah, 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 blah. But the interesting thing is that these grills are just different than the grills you're used to and they take some time to learn right i mean i failed it i've had mine i guess about six years now i failed at a bunch of stuff and you know it's one of those things where it's a different type of cooking and you got to put in some time to learn it and so not everybody out there wants a new challenge not everybody out there wants to do something different and when those people want to return their grills i tell them okay but the problem is is that the things that they bought that grill for are obtainable for them and they're obtainable for every person if you would just kind of learn and some of these facebook groups you know they really can provide some great information and some awesome recipes you know one of the really interesting things, and I think this applies to all of grilling, but one of the things when you make something and if you post it, inevitably someone is going to put up a post that says time and temperature. I mean, it's just this routine thing. And basically what they're asking you is what temperature did you cook that at and how long did you cook it? You know, but that's really the wrong question. And the reason I say that is because it doesn't really matter how long I cooked it and what temperature because my piece of meat's going to be different than yours and my weather is going to be different. I mean, weather can impact the cooking temperatures in these things. And so really the answer to that question is always about what's the internal temperature of what you're trying to cook because if you put a meat thermometer in something and you sit it on this grill and you leave it there till it gets to the temperature you want it to be, it's always going to come off perfect. But that might take more for me than you. Uh, if because we all have different size meats or whatever it's pretty interesting i mean if in southwest georgia when it gets a little colder as compared to when it's really hot it takes me longer to cook the food because my grill won't get to the same temperatures because the metal's colder so you know but it takes a lot of time and i'm going to tell you it's a commitment but it's one of those things that when you get good at it 
I mean, you can make food way better at home than you're ever going to get at a restaurant. We'll be at a restaurant, and I'll look at something on the menu and be like, nah, I can make that better than that. Um, it really will make beautiful steaks. Great for huge pieces of meat. Briskets are wonderful. I have a recipe that's my favorite. It's a, it's a beer brined corned beef recipe that I'll make for parties sometimes, and it's always a big hit. And so just wanted to kind of say that to people to let you know that that exists if you weren't aware of it. And uh, if you do like to cook, and especially if you like to grill, I really encourage you to kind of try to take a look at one of these grills and just see if it's something that interests you. All right. Well, the last topic that I'm always going to talk about in these, or at least initially here, is going to be bourbon. And so I'm a big bourbon guy these days. It's been a few years that I got interested in it. And again, it seems like just this topic that's nothing. But man, when you really dive into it, it's ridiculous just how much that there is to it. I never used to drink bourbon at all, you know, and, it, I, you know, before I ever drank beer, I hated beer. And then I drank beer a little bit and I sort of got a taste for it. And bourbon is the same kind of thing. You know, I started drinking bourbon a little bit and man, when you first drink it, it just all burns and it's just all bad and it's whatever. And, uh, but you give it a little bit of time and you get to know more about it and you get to know some people who enjoy it. And I'm really lucky. Um, I was able with a couple of guys I know who like bourbon to start a bourbon group in our area, the Southwest Georgia Whiskey Collective. And so we really quickly got 90 something members and had some tastings. And, you know, we just talked about we didn't believe it would really blow up like it did, but we're pretty happy that it did. And it's and it's really an enjoyable time and met some good people and, of course, had some good bourbons. Um, and so for today, you know, I have so much to say about it. It's crazy. I could have done an only bourbon podcast, but I'm just going to do it here a little bit at a time. Now, one thing when I do these episodes is that when I get to the bourbon section, I'm going to pour myself a bourbon and have one. If you're listening and you like bourbon, please have one with me. Or if you like another drink. But anyway, I got the bourbon going here. So uh, today I am drinking just sort of run-of-the-mill Knob Creek off-the-shelf, 100-proof, small batch, pretty good bourbon. You know, one of the things about the bourbon craze is everybody's like, you have to drink the most extensive bourbon and all this kind of stuff, but that's not really true. There's plenty of really low-cost, really delicious bourbons on the shelf. We'll talk about some of those later, but some of the really nice and expensive ones are really good, too. Um, but, you know, the one thing I'm going to say right off the bat about bourbon, which is you can go online and you can talk to people and everyone is going to be like, oh, the best bourbon in the world is this, or the best bourbon in the world is this. But the one thing that's absolutely true is that the taste of bourbon is so subjective. People like different things. They have different profiles. Some of them burn more than others. Some people like the burn. You know, some have a really high alcohol content. Some have low. People just like what they like. So, it's really, really, really hard to kind of say what the best bourbon is because the best bourbon is whatever bourbon you like the best, right? Um, also, funny is a big argument about whether you should ever put ice in your bourbon. I used to because it watered it down a little bit, got the burn out. I don't do it anymore. I have like metal whiskey cubes I freeze now and it doesn't dilute it because now I like to drink it neat. But again, when you first start out, it's different, you know? Um the bourbons that you like when you first start out are different than the bourbons you like later. You know, there's some bourbons like Blanton's. There's one that came out called New Riff. There's some that are... Basil Hayden, I think, is one that's a great bourbon for new drinkers. They're not super high proof. They don't have a lot of 
flavor really right i mean you drink it and it's just the same from the beginning to the end and at the end of it it doesn't have a whole bunch of burn and the burn is really what turns almost everyone off of bourbon um and so you drink stuff like that to start with and you like it and then eventually though you kind of branch out a little bit right and uh so and i'm still early in the journey there's people drinking a lot more high power stuff than i am but i'm drinking a lot different stuff than i used to and it's all right there's no wrong answer. It's just where you are in your journey and what you're enjoying at the time, right? But I would encourage you, if you do drink bourbon, you start drinking bourbon, is to get together with friends, have everybody bring a bottle and just try different bourbons. They're just so different. And what you think is the best bourbon you've ever had today, I mean, you can taste stuff and be like, wow, this is so great. So I encourage that. So in the next few minutes here, just as a general topic, I'm going to talk about what is bourbon and there's a gentleman called Fred Minnick. I uh, got this information from his book called Bourbon Curious, which is a great book if you want to get into bourbon. It just it covers so many things, and it's so informative. But the question is, what is bourbon, right? And so first thing that confuses people is whiskey versus bourbon. And it's kind of confusing, but the answer is that all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. Whiskey is a very broad category. It does contain bourbon, but it also contains scotch, and it contains Irish whiskey and Canadian whiskey, and just all of these different categories that are that all have different requirements. And the interesting thing is there are federal laws and very strict rules about what you have to do to make something a bourbon. And so people do believe that bourbon's only made in Kentucky, and that is completely false. It's made all over the country, although... If you want to put Kentucky on your label, of course, it should be. It has to be made in Kentucky. But there's strict rules. So in order for something to be a bourbon now, and I guess technically we should talk a little bit about how bourbon is made because it's kind of interesting. Like all alcohol pretty much comes from grains that are fermented and they make a liquid. And then what you do with that liquid is what it becomes, right? So this base liquid can be beer. It could be all these different alcohols. Um... Now, bourbon has some special rules on what that, what it, it's called a mash bill. is basically this fermented stuff you get after you put these grains together. Um, so to be a whiskey, uh, it cannot exceed 80% alcohol or the maximum proof can, it can not be higher than 160 proof. Um, and I apologize, I just said to be a whiskey, but this is actually to be a bourbon. Um, and the mash bill or the grains used must be a fermented mash of not less than 51% corn. And so some other types of alcohol drinks use rye and they use all these different grains, but, but bourbon has to have 51% corn. It can be stored at no more than 62.5% alcohol or 125 proof. And I read this and I read this book kind of early in my bourbon journey not really understanding what that meant. But this is sort of interesting because there's some bourbons, like one of the most popular ones out there is called George T. Stagg. Sometimes it'll be like 131 proof and, and reading these rules, technically you could say that's not a bourbon. However, it's going to be called one. So there's a little bit of give here on some of this stuff, of course. And um, it has to be stored in new charred oak barrels. And so you have to meet those requirements in order to have a bourbon. Um, and so, you know, it's a wrong belief out there that all bourbons have to be at least two years old. Now, there is something that's called straight bourbon whiskey. And if you want to put straight bourbon whiskey on your label, 
then it definitely has to be at least two years old. But age statements are not required on any bourbon unless it's under four years old. And so what that means is, is that, you know, the longer that that this alcohol sits in this barrel because it's the contact with the charred oak that's giving this thing its flavor, then the stronger that that flavor can be or or the more burn there can be or the more flavors or these kind of things. And so, you know, people seek bourbons that have been in the barrel longer, but the companies really don't even have to put how long it's been in there. And what we're seeing with bourbon over time here is that the amount of bottles that are actually telling you what the age is is going down which a lot of bourbon drinkers don't you know aren't too happy about um the other thing is is that bourbon is really not something that has a lot of additives you're trying to just drink what comes out of the barrel and so if it's labeled with straight or only the word bourbon appears on it then by law you know no additional flavors can be added now there's other things where flavors are added and so we can talk about some of those things a little bit later and the bourbon portion here went pretty darn fast i guess i'm out of time but we'll talk more about bourbon later but just as a little primer here for you about what it is that is required for something to be a bourbon and uh you know how long it might be in the barrel i think the longest one that i've heard of is somewhere around 30 years uh, the longest one that's been in the barrel that I've actually had a drink of is 18 years. And it had a bunch of burn. It had been in there a long time. But I had another one that was 17 that was really smooth. So it's pretty interesting. So listen, this was my first real episode that followed the format here. I do appreciate it if you listened and you hung with me. Just because of the fact that uh, that it is my first time here. Try not to goof up too much. Hopefully it wasn't too bad. It's interesting because the first one I did, I had to restart it like five times. You really have to kind of get brainless about it. You can't think because when you think, you start to stutter and say all the wrong stuff. And so uh, because this is a new thing for me, I'm just assuming over time, hopefully, that I'll get more comfortable and better at it. But, uh, but I appreciate you coming. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Look out for the next episode, and you guys have a great one.